One Hope Church. All right, good morning, everyone. Glad you are here. Glad to see you today. And um, what a crazy week of weather. I think we experienced all four seasons this week. Now, if you go to Mexico sometime, it's possible we could experience all four seasons in a day. I have done that. It's kind of a weird experience um, to like be wearing shorts and then need like a really thick sleeping bag. So it's, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty interesting um, climates. And man, just so much to give thanks for. Um, and I mean, just consider... You know, most, most of us, I mean, we have heat in our homes. You go and turn this little thing and say, I want it to be 68 degrees, 70 degrees, 72 degrees, and this machine makes your house that temperature. Like, folks, do we understand? That's crazy. Like, you go back, like, not very long, not very long, and, you're, and if you went back and told people, hey, there's these things that do this, they'd be like, you kidding me? Like, are you? And I mean, just come on, you know. And and again, most but most people in the world also don't have the ability to have the ease of comfort and things that we have. We need to be thankful people and not take all that we have um, for granted. And I think that that's one problem living in a culture um, that is affluent. It becomes easy to become less satisfied even though we have so much we have so much it, you can still in, you know, have this dissatisfaction because somebody else always has more right so it's, um, it's really weird um, to think about that and, and this morning we're going to go back in time a couple of thousand years to a wedding um, in Cana in the book of John um, chapter 2 and you know, the nice thing for many people in that part of the world and, and why that was a great place to be um, was their, you know, temperate um, climate where it gets cold but not too cold um, and it gets hot but not too hot in most places. There's, um, you know, a, a temperate climate. And that's just an interesting thing. I'm just going to give a little side note here, because uh, when Claire and I were in um, in Israel and we were in Nazareth, and we're going to look this morning where Jesus turns water to wine, and we in Nazareth they have what they think is the original, or from the time of of Jesus, the wine press um, that would have been used, the place where the people would have stomped the grapes, and then you can see where the water would flow. I mean, the the juice would flow down. You know, and then be collected, um, you know, in a in a in a vessel, um, and then they would take it and you know ferment it. But and, and so this is this scene happens near there. But also just thinking there about these olive trees that were there, and there are, do you know like olive trees can be like thousands of years old? That their root system, like the the tree itself, like it. I mean, if you if it got burned or whatever, as long as the roots don't get destroyed, it comes back. Um, and I mean, so these trees, there are trees that are like 4,000 years old 
our lives are, are like a vapor, <laughs> even compared to like an olive tree. Um, it's just kind of kind of amazing how God made this world, and He uses all these things to give examples to us of His power and of His goodness. Um, and we have to slow down, I think, sometimes just to appreciate what God has given. And, you know, I mean, and, and obviously, you know, for, for a lot of people in the world, like, snow is no big deal. But for those of us here, it's like, it's snowing. Because, ah, it's snowing! You know, everybody got to run outside and go crazy. And, you know, this weird white stuff that we don't see very often that's coming down from the sky. Um, so we have, we have an appreciation for what we don't experience as much, but we lack appreciation for what we can experience all the time. And, and my, one of my encouragements this morning is just to slow down and just to give thanks and to be encouraged and to give thanks for all the good that we have. It's so easy to focus on the negative, but to slow down and think about the good things um, you know, in your life and to tell yourself the truth about some of the good things God has, has given you. I'm um, to enjoy and to enjoy that. Um, so I'm going to read the first 11 verses of John chapter 2, and then we'll pray and get into the, the message this morning. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, it did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, we thank you for the word that you have given us, the word of the scripture, but also the word, your son. We thank you for your love and your goodness to us, and we just want to pause and give you thanks this morning. Lord, you are good, you are holy, and you are just, and thank you for every good thing you have given us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um. So we have some traveling that's taken the, the disciples. Jesus' disciples have, you know, by this point left, um, you know, where John the Baptist was baptizing beyond the Jordan in chapter 1 that we read. And, you know, it's taken us a little time to get through John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is just so, such an important chapter um, in the scripture for the, you know, we spend time, a good bit of time there because that sets the, you know, everything else up for the book. And you have to, you know, you need to have a really good understanding of John 1. So if you missed any of John 1, Go back, study John 1, listen to messages, the messages um, on that. It's kind of like the book of Genesis. You know, you really need the first few chapters of Genesis to get the whole book and to get, you know, a lot of, you know, the scripture as a whole. Um, those first four chapters of Genesis are just like crucial, crucial, crucial. 
And so while all scriptures God breathed and given inspiration is profitable for us in all ways, there are like key chapters that, you know, understanding those is important for being able to understand the rest in its in its context. So I just want to emphasize, you know, the importance of John one as we move into chapter two today. And we see them move and, and they go toward um, Cain of Galilee says the mother of Jesus was there because Cana and Nazareth not too far um, apart. You know, there have been a, a, a few miles um, journey for the mother of, of Jesus and perhaps other families. We would expect that there would have been other family members there as well that Mary wouldn't have been um, traveling alone. There's a, um, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So these are people, you know, that this couple that's getting married are people that they knew because again the proximity of Nazareth to um, Cana of Galilee and so uh, they have this wedding and weddings there are a little bit different than weddings here you know weddings here okay well there's a bridal party and they're going to have a get together like the day before uh, you know there's going to maybe some pre-stuff you know that's more popular now that's more popular now you know the bridesmaids and Everybody goes away um, for a weekend, you know, sort of thing. And crews would go away for a weekend. Like, that sort of stuff happens now that in recent generations, like, when Claire and I got married, that wasn't a thing. You know, people didn't really do that. You had your, you know, your rehearsal dinner, and you, and you spent some time with your friends, and then the next day, people came for your wedding. It's a few-hour deal, and then it's over, right? A little bit slower pace back in the time of Jesus where they took time they did a better job I think in terms of like celebrating and mourning like joy was experienced for longer periods of time mourning was experienced for longer periods of time now again for the people most intimately involved joy the joy lasts longer the mourning lasts you know can last a really long time right I'm not talking about so much the differences there I'm talking about the the culture that collectively we are going to celebrate and rejoice for an extended period of time, or collectively we are going to mourn for an extended period of time. Our culture is very different. We're all busy to the next thing <coughs> sort of deal. We all are. I'm just, 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 just reality. In this agriculturally based society, there's naturally seasons and times where it's easier to slow down. There's times of like tremendous physical exertion and effort because it is the time to plant or it is the time, you know, to harvest. There, and there are certainly, you know, people could keep, you know, there are things to do, but there would be a natural slowing down at different seasons in the year, and you can imagine that people on the the morning side of things, you can't really dictate that, right? You can't really dictate when people are gonna, you know, pass away. But on the celebration side, you could plan that. You wouldn't plan like, hey, we're gonna get married right at the beginning of this harvest, where everybody has to be out in the fields from, you know, sun up to sundown. You would set it up at a time where it was a little more relaxed in terms of what had to be done, right? So these celebrations, often the whole community is there, and it's like a week-long thing. You know, people have traveled, family members of different parts of Israel come, 
and they're going to stay there, and you're going to have this like week-long wedding celebration. Not an uncommon thing in those days. It's just a different culture, a different way of life. But that context is important because if you're going to have a party that long, you're going to need you got entire. I mean, I mean, you're going to have you got hundreds of people seven days. It's going to take a good bit of beverage, okay? <laughs> to you know, that's going to, that's going to require a lot of beverage, and we get an indication of that because when they ran out, and the mother of Jesus comes, Mary comes and says, "Hey, they've they, they've they have no wine. They're out." So obviously, these friends were not. You know the the wealthiest, where they had you know an abundance, and it was no big deal to have all those people there and to to give them that. Um, and, per, and 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 it's not really said here. So we, I mean, there's there's a possibility that more people are in the area and around because Jesus is there, and maybe some people have heard Jesus is there, and so maybe they have more guests than they expected. You know, to have, but in whatever case, they're out. Really interesting. This is fascinating here. John doesn't use like Mary came and says. He always says the mother of Jesus. He doesn't call her by her first name, and he never refers to himself. He refers to himself as. The, the, the beloved one, the one whom Jesus loved, he, he doesn't say, I, John, in this gospel. And that could be because, remember the teaching of John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. He didn't want the attention in, the, in his writing, this gospel, he didn't want the attention to be on himself or on any other character that people may be prone to to overemphasize, he wanted the emphasis to be on Jesus. And when Jesus says to her, woman, that is not um, belittling in, in any way. When he's at the, on the cross, he says, woman, behold your son. It wasn't, people kind of read that with like an English, you know, bent to it, kind of like, woman? What you doing? Yeah, that's not... <laughs> That's not, the, that's not the tone and that's not the intention here that Jesus gives at all. You know, again, cultural um, understanding and language, you know, understanding. If you read Southern onto this, you might have a wrong picture of the heart of Jesus toward his mother. I mean, we, we know what that heart is. And so we need to be careful here. But he is also... What does that have to do with us is also this expression, this, maybe call it an idiom, this phrase that is basically saying, like, that's, that's not my realm. We're in different realms here of what we're about and what we're, what, we're, what we're doing. So here in this, Jesus does set up a distinction between his mother's world and his world between what her priorities are and what his priorities are. 
Now, that being said, in his grace, in his compassion, in his love for his mother, he still meets her request. But he does so not in an overt way for everybody to see, hey, I got these water pots here, wine, here's this miracle. He does it differently than that. He, he does it, you know, with the servants, with a few people, and his disciples, you know, see, and it's more of a, I mean, John even uses the, the word that's for sign as opposed to, like, the, like miracle terminology here. Um, because he's, he's showing something as he does this. Because where does he take these, uh, this water from? He has options. Because they have to fill these water pots. But these are the water pots that they had set aside for the Jewish custom of purification. It's right there in the text. These were the things they would ceremonial, you know, the water pots they would use for ceremonial washing to cleanse themselves, you know, before, you know as they go in to, to have the feast and to have the celebrations. And he takes that and he turns it into wine. Again, this is, this is a lot of wine. Six water pots, each containing 20 to 30 gallons. Minimum of 120 gallons, maximum of 180 gallons, split the difference. 150 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. But again, it's a lot of people. It's not like it was, it wasn't like, I don't think, it was, it's not like it was a gallon per person or something like that. I'm just, just saying. But it's the best wine. I mean, and you can understand the custom. You know, you serve your best first. People are like, this is really good. As they've had some and they're, they have less of a desire it's not as big a deal that what comes later isn't as good as what they enjoyed, you know, at the at the beginning. So when I mean when Jesus does something here, I mean he does it. I don't. I, don't, I mean he's not going to make like poor wine. He's going to make the best. <laughs> you know, they've you know it's probably the best that they these people have ever had in their life. They're like, wow, this is really really good. Um. So they had this. Now again, Jesus is, is showing something here as he takes the, these water pots of purification, things from the, from the old ways, and he turns that to wine. He's going to be doing something new in his covenant. I mean, there's a little bit of a hint there. You know, as we look forward to the Last Supper with his disciples and he takes the bread and breaks it and he takes the wine and blesses it and says, you know, this is, you know, to do this and remember to me that it's the cup of the, of the, the new covenant. You know, it, it represents his blood. So even here, you're getting a hint of what is coming. It's not an accident that Jesus does this. Here at the beginning, he's giving an indication. The new is coming. It's a new covenant. It's better. And with that, these old things, the entire old systems of, of purification are going away. 
because there's going to be the, his blood that comes that ultimately purifies you. You're not going to need it. And you also have a tr uh, another switch there that's from the requirement of these washings to the joy and freedom that is in Christ. See how everything changes in Jesus, in his economy. It's all different. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Now, unfortunately, I have to, to talk about this a little bit because, you know, there's people who are going to take this passage and say, well, you know, Jesus turned that water to, to wine, and so therefore, it's okay for me to drink what I want. And to even use it as an excuse for excess. Nowhere here does Jesus give any excuse. If anybody at that wedding drinks too much, goes outside of moderation, and drinks too much and gets drunk, is that Jesus' fault because he made that water into wine? No. Not at all. That's their fault. They drank too much. We don't give any indication that that happened. But even if it did, that goes on the personal responsibility. Because God gives us good things all over the place. The problem is, humans abuse it. God gives us wine. God gives us resources, financial resources. God gives us sex. God gives us all sorts of wonderful things. The problem is, is when those things get abused, misused, perverted, overused. There's all sorts of ways to mess it up, but that doesn't eliminate the fact that God has given us good gifts. And so we don't, we don't negate the good because there are some who abuse the good. Now that being said, we have to give a word of caution here because you have to know yourself. There are, I mean, and, and especially you have to know the culture that you're in, too, right? And your testimony and how all those things play together. We sadly live in a culture where alcohol is greatly abused. We don't, you know, we live in a culture that when it comes to that subject, it's, for many people, it's excess, right? People talk about, hey, we're going to go get sloppy this weekend. Like, there's an intent even. I intend to intend, and I will get drunk. Right, that's, that's sinful. That's wrong. It's always been wrong, always will be wrong. That hasn't always been the case for all people and isn't the case for all people today. So, we have to understand, you have to understand your culture, you have to understand yourself, you have to understand what's a good testimony in your context, and to live accordingly. But the person who would be tempted or have a tendency to have too much is probably better to say, well, I'll have none. But folks, this isn't just in that area of life. Because, you know, we can talk about that. And people are generally like, okay, we don't want people who struggle towards alcoholism, drinking, and tipping themselves to, you know, be in a bad space in life. We, everybody goes, yeah, that makes sense. We can understand that. 
But what if watching HGTV causes you to covet? I'm just, I, that's what I'm saying. What if it, I mean, you can, because here's the deal. Because with alcohol, people be like, you know, knowing they have a propensity toward, toward drinking too much and getting drunk, we'll go, well, I'm just going to have a, I'll just have a little one that turns to two, turns in three, turns in four, right? Okay. And we go, well, that's wrong. You shouldn't, you got to like, you, you got to take kind of a hard stance with yourself. But when it comes to something like coveting, people will be like, well, you know, I really like, you know, the design elements of the show. Right? I like, and I like to hear the people's stories and all of that. But if it causes you to covet, you have to take a hard stance with yourself. Sports. Well, I like to go to the game. I like to go uh, watch the game. Well, if what you see when you're watching the game causes you to lust, guess what you can't do? Watch the game. Or you have to, I mean, or you have to have some very strict rules about as soon as they're going to go, I mean, whatever it is that you have to do, and it's going to be different for different people. <laughs> and I wasn't planning on talking about the Super Bowl thing this morning, folks, but, but, but really, like, what do people expect to see? Like, if you turned it on, you were expecting to see raunchy. <laughs> you, you, were, you were expecting to see exactly what you saw. I mean, people, I mean, this is what shocked me, is people were like, I was shocked. <laughs> okay, I find that shocking. <laughs> if you were shocked, I find that shocking. It's like, you knew what it was going to be, so you needed to have a plan beforehand that you were just going to turn off the television when halftime started. Period. End of story. End of story. You can't sit there and go, well, I was shocked, I was surprised, and then I lusted. <laughs> that, does, that is sad. That's just sad. Like, that isn't even common sense. That isn't even common sense. So, again, you see, here's the thing, though. If I talk about it with alcoholism, everybody's like, yep. Talk about covetousness, it's like, easy now. <laughs> Lust in sports, ooh, <laughs> Greed, gossip. You see, it's always good if it's somebody else's junk. If it's something that somebody else struggles with it, preach! If it's something that, if it's something that we struggle with, it's like, could you be quiet? Could you not just not use that example? Listen, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. He's no respecter of persons. And he comes exactly whatever your heart issue is because he wants you to be like him and so he wants to expose the junk. And I'd do us a great disservice if I just take the easy route there and don't talk about the stuff that could ruffle feathers. Not going to do it. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm just being real here with you. Whoever's preaching, it doesn't matter who's preaching. If you're not offended, sometimes that person's not doing their job. Because the scripture is supposed to call us out. If we preach the scripture, it's going to call us out. It's going to call me out. It's going to call you out. It's going to call all of us out. Because it's going to, because the desire there is to continuously push us to be more like Jesus. 
So this is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples <coughs> believed in him. I mean, I would hope that that would be enough right there for anybody to believe in what, he, what, what they saw there, you know, genuine, real thing that he had done. In verse 12 it says, And after this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. In the Passover, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. I'm going to stop there for a second. I'm going to go back to say the Passover of the Jews was near. Just remember you know, what Passover is. Remember the, the Hebrews as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God raised up Moses you know, to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardens his heart. And finally there's you know, the angel of death that's going to come and strike down everyone that doesn't have the blood of the lamb on its you know, above the door and on its doorpost. And for everybody who had that covering, they were safe. What's interesting there is that it did not matter the quality of the person's life and how they had lived their life up until that point. What mattered is that they were under the covering. The same thing is true in Jesus. The, it doesn't matter the quality of the life that was lived before the person comes to Christ. That person is saved not by their good character, but they are covered by the blood of Jesus. They are safe because they are covered by his blood. Amen? So he went for this and this is our first Passover in his public ministry. And it says he found those in the temple who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. So there are people there who are making a profit off of this celebration of their freedom and of God's great grace towards them and God's power and there are people there who are like we can make a lot of cash we can make a lot of money because people are coming for this celebration and of course they justified it with you know we're providing this great convenience you know for the people but even the money the money changing the money for the temple had to be of a particular type and so people are coming again from you know all over the world and they need to change their money and it's not a normal exchange rate that's happening here. It's, a, you know, it's an exorbitant profit-taking. Because the people have to have this, and they only have that. So that trade puts them at a disadvantage, and people are taking advantage of that disadvantage. And they could... The, the real issue here is... He found in the temple... Like, you know, in, in the area where everybody's going to be, you know, gathering and, and preparing, that's where these people are. It's different if they had been in the marketplace. If they had been in the marketplace and had been charging reasonable rates. This isn't, 
some sort of lesson against capitalism or a lesson <laughs> against people making a profit. Like, don't, don't turn it into that. It's against people taking advantage and putting what is common in the holy place. And so, Jesus, the one who makes peace with us and God, takes a scourge of cords. He makes a big whip. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is... He overturned their tables, and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. It was the wrong activity in the wrong... It was was not the wrong activity. It was in the wrong place. Now, how the activity is being done, the rates that are being charged, that's wrong. But particularly, it's about there was a time and a place, and this wasn't it. Jesus expected them to have this thing we call reverence, respect. We can easily lose that. And and just because we have freedom in Christ doesn't mean we are to lose reverence. Like the name of God is still holy. Gathering in his name is still holy. There should be reverence and respect for the Lord and the things about him. The problem in the church in, in Corinth, when they were, they were getting drunk at the Lord's table, they had lost reverence. They had lost reverence for the Lord. We can't do that. God's name is holy. His things are, are to be respected, what, what he has given us. Now, we have it again. A lot easier because our our like bucket of things <laughs> that we need to to see to and take care of is, is 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 pretty small compared to the obligations they were in under the Mosaic Law. Like they, I mean, you know, if you're comparing, they got like this huge bucket of things uh, that are holy and these things to take care of and these things to make sure they respect and to do properly. Like they got enough to fill this room. And, you know, we just have a very small, very few things like, hey, take care here. But our heart still needs to be full of, like, God is holy. We worship and revere him. Like, he is great. I am small. That hasn't changed. His disciples remembered that it was written, verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. From Psalm 69, 9. Now what's sad is that when you find at the end of the public ministry of Jesus, which is just a few years, he cleanses the temple again before his last Passover with his disciples. There's two cleansings of the temple. This one here in John and the other ones... Um, in the synoptic of the, the, the three Gospels. But he does at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his public ministry. 
the sad thing is there is that you know as a as dogs return to their vomit so did these you know people return to their practices of not respecting the things of God it was an opportunity for them to say Jesus is right we need to pay attention and to listen to what he says maybe he is actually the Messiah maybe he is the promised one and if we're going to do business we're now going to do it in the marketplace where we're supposed to and not trying to take advantage of our ability to have this location it also tells you something that not just the business people, I mean, you can imagine that these are probably probably the people that have access to this because not everybody is in there selling. So who's going to get to sell? Well, those who are well-connected to the religious leaders are going to be the ones that get those best, you know, the prime territory to sell at the temple itself. So that, and they're probably because we know, and we know, and we know the Pharisees were greedy. That's one of the things that Jesus condemns them for. They're probably profiting. The Pharisees themselves are probably profiting off of these activities. So the people that are responsible, the people who should have been driving this out and saying you can't do this here, are at least allowing it. We can say that for certain. And probably profiting off of it because you know that's just kind of how that normally works, human nature. Again, God knows people's hearts; He knows what they're in it for. God is still evaluating the hearts of people today, and He knows what people are in it for. We always need to check our hearts. Verse 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Well, I I think he just showed you that he had the authority to do these things because he was able to do it and you couldn't stop him. He was one dude. You know, he's one man. It's not like he had all these, he went in there with this, you know, huge group of people. Like, if it was just physical force, they would have been able to stop him from messing up their business. I mean, like, no, we're, we're stronger with you, we're carrying you out. He has something here that's stronger than physical force in his authority that he drove them out and they, they took their whooping. But Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture in the word which Jesus had spoken. Love that. You know, they're talking about physical things. He's talking, the temple. And he was talking about himself. His disciples remembered. So John chapter 2, there's a lot of things in this chapter that are, are beautiful because they, they you know, give, they're a foreshadowing of the things that are going to come at the end of the book. You have, you know, the water to wine and, you know, 
the Last Supper and the New Covenant. You have that, and then you have this about his resurrection. And so John's setting the stage as he writes. I mean, it's a little bit of a, you would call it a spoil alert, except for the people that he's writing to. I've already heard that Jesus rose from the dead, you know, most of them. Um, I mean, he's writing it for the world, but he's not like, hey, I'm going to reveal the secret at the end sort of thing. He's like, no, you've heard about this. What he's trying to do is to lay it out in a, in a convincing manner. Like, here's all the evidence you need. Here's everything you need that you should believe in Jesus too. That's clear when we get to the end of the book as he drops that point home. But verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. John's argument here is that Jesus was, is the great revealer of hearts. He knows everyone fully. He knows them better than they know themselves. He knows all intentions. And whether people are, are like temporary bandwagon people or they're true and, you know, we, we talk about that, you know, in sports, right? Bandwagon people that were there when teams winning championships and then they're not fans anymore again once they're not winning, you know, championships. See, the great thing about Jesus is it doesn't matter how long a person has said they believe in him, like, whether for a long time or a little time, he knows the authenticity. He knows the authenticity. And he also doesn't need to seek the validation of others. Jesus was complete and full and whole as very God. He did not need to seek the validation of people. And if you are in Jesus, then you also can be freed from seeking the world's approval and feeling like you need the world to approve you or validate you. If someone higher has validated you and your existence, why do you need someone lower to do it? If God has said that he's made us in his image, and God has said out of his love for us, that in the, in the, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and Christ said that he and his Father would make their home in us, and Christ said that we would be sealed, you know, we would receive the Holy Spirit of promise. And Christ said that he's gone to prepare a place for us, that where he is, we may be also. So if our identity and our purpose, because we've been given a mission to go and to make disciples of all people groups. So if your identity your purpose to worship God and to make him known and your future are all secure in Jesus, then why in the world do we feel a need that a certain number of people liked our post? Why in the world do we need someone else to tell us 
Good job. Why in the world do we need to somebody to say, I agree with you? Like, why do we need those things from those who are lesser than God if God has said, he's made us in his image, he loved us enough that Jesus would die for us, he's given us a purpose, and he's given us an eternal home. So why do we need this other And folks, that's simply an issue of the flesh and the spirit. Because your spirit don't need none of it. Of what the world has. The new creation, you in Christ, doesn't need any of those things from the world. Your flesh still wants it, though. My flesh still wants it, though. So that's just an issue. That's just a litmus test. That's just an indicator of am I living in the spirit or am I living in the flesh? Am I being driven by the spirit or am I being driven by the emotional reactions of my flesh? Because your spirit doesn't need it. Only your flesh does. Now, I'm going to balance this a a slight bit because the scripture tells us to encourage one another. Encouragement is a spiritual gift. I'm not telling you, don't take away the message and say, I'm not telling you to stop sending like, thank you notes, and showing people your appreciation for things they've done and things like that. I'm not saying that. I'm getting, uh, what I'm talking about there, right here, is the core issue of your heart. And, and when you go to bed at night, if you have contentment in life, based on who you are in Jesus or who the world says you are, where is your validation Really, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the fact that we're supposed to love and encourage and everything one another. I'm talking about when you're sitting there and you're facing a difficult situation and the world says you're wrong and God says you're right, which one means something to you and which one doesn't. That's what I'm talking about. Like the church is supposed to have your back if you're agreeing with Jesus. Right? Like, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. But I'm talking about the world and the world system. We don't need their validation. And this is one of the biggest mistakes that I believe in this generation that the church has done. It has craved for the world to say, you're okay with us. And that is ultimately destroying the church. And destroying our children. The church acquiescing and saying, we need the world to validate our positions. Folks, we can't do that. And we live in a community where sometimes that's You know, it's tough. Sometimes it's tough. But we need to be mostly concerned about what Jesus says. Now, here's the last part I want to drive on on about that. So if if you're in Jesus, you are freed from seeking the world's approval. We can't abuse that concept. 
because we have to be authentic followers of Jesus, striving to be authentic followers of Jesus, living according to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. What we find in the Gospels, particularly Sermon on the Mount, teaching of Jesus right before he you know, leaves his disciples, but all the Gospels, and then the instructions and the letters that we re- receive in the New Testament. So if we're living according to Jesus' way, then we don't have to be looking over our shoulder all the time. Because we're confident that we're with, with Jesus, and if you're with Jesus, you're in a good place. If you see it how Jesus sees it, you're in a good spot. So, as followers of Jesus, we are supposed to be the ones who are leading the way and saying, this is how God wants us to live. This is what he wants our perspective to be, our attitude to be, how we view these various issues in our world. And we can confidently say it because this is what lines up with the scripture. So it's not just my opinion. It's what the Bible says. It's what Jesus says. It's what the apostles say. Okay? So here we are. The problem is when we want to have a different viewpoint or a different perspective than Jesus and the apostles. That gets us in trouble. That will always get you in trouble. But then the world has the option. The world has options. And different individuals, different people in the world, they have options. Because they can see the difference and hear the call of Christ, the, you know, the message to follow Jesus as well, and they can repent and follow him. Or they can decide to persecute everyone who believes according to the way of Jesus or somewhere in between those two ideas. Now, we have a preference, obviously, as God does, because God is merciful. We have a preference on which, uh, which of those is taken, right? We would much prefer people to repent, to believe in Jesus, to walk with him. But we need to be assured that both of those results are going to happen along the way. There will be people who say, that is a much better way to view eternity, life, purpose, everything else. I'm going to go, I'm going to follow Jesus with you. Let's go. And there are going to be people who are like, well, I hate your guts now. Both of those are going to happen. We have a preference, but we have to just understand and live with the reality that both of those are going to happen. And in that, Jesus tells us not to worry about tomorrow, you know, not to live a fretful life, and that he is going to return. He is the returning king. We're either going to go be with him or he's going to he's going to return. Like one of those things is going to happen like and we're going to go be with him and come back with him, all the things with him, 
we're with Jesus is the bottom line. Um, and for us, that should give us a great confidence and hope. So much is about perspective, and we know this in our own lives. If you have kids, you know this in the life of your kid. You know, they can, you know, a little tiny thing happens, and they are off the rails with like tears and sadness, and life is terrible, and all these things, right? And it's our responsibility, like one of the things we do in that comfort, is to show them the bigger picture and the per- and perspective. Like we're comforting them because like it's a real thing for them, right? But we also have a responsibility to remind them of the big picture. So don't let this little thing ruin your whole day, right? Don't let what happened in 120 seconds I mean, some things can happen in 120 seconds really bad, but what I'm saying is, for these little things, I'm talking about specifically little things that happen, we give them perspective, right? Hey, don't let your day get ruined over that. But folks, there's so many times where we need perspective as adults. Like, we need perspective of God made us Jesus died for us, we have a purpose, and Jesus is going to return. Like, okay, that's the truth. Now this thing that I'm dealing with, take a deep breath and deal with that in light of the bigger picture truth. And move forward. We can do that. I have to, listen, and I'm somebody who definitely needs that because I can be like, womp, womp, in the corner, (laughs) head down, you know. With the best of them. But we need the truth. And we need, to tell, we need each other. We need to tell each other the truth. And to love each other in the truth of Jesus. And to encourage one another. And to remember that our identity is in Jesus. Our identity is in him. We have meaning. We have purpose. I cannot imagine having to go through this life without understanding why I am here. Can't imagine having to go through life like that. Like, there's a reason. Like, so much of our world is either doing everything it can to numb itself from reality or depressed about what they think reality is. There's a reason. But we have a solution. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you for your great love for us. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, focus our time on you, Lord, like we just want to Again, be reminded and be thankful of who you are, Jesus, and all that you have done for us. Glory to your precious and holy name. Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross for us and that we can give thanks and we can take this bread and this cup in your name. Please, before we take it, examine our hearts by your spirit and help us 
to be for for us to be in in your presence and to be full of love for you. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us. In your precious name, we pray. Amen. So we have our open time, and again, just a reminder that the bread and the cup is here as you are ready to take it. But please, you know, make sure you've talked to the Lord. You know, confess any unconfessed sin before taking it, um, and that whether it's a, a prayer, a, a scripture to read, um, a song to sing, that it points us to the person of Christ um, in, this, in these few minutes that we have together. Mm-hmm.